God, it is horrible to see what's happening in the news. It grieves our heart to see a country being uh, attacked. God, it grieves our heart to see wickedness and evil. And God, when I look at the sorts of things that are happening, the reality is we live in the middle of a spiritual war and the battle we fight is not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities in the heavenlies. And so we come as your people, as your family, and we stand united against the powers of darkness. And we say Jesus was victorious. Uh, Colossians tells us that you disarmed the powers of darkness on the cross and made a public spectacle of them. Ephesians tells us that when you were raised from the dead, you're placed at the right hand of the Father and all things, powers, principalities, rulers, dominions, were placed under your feet. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords and it's your kingdom that's supposed to reside here. So we stand in your kingdom against the powers of darkness and ask that you would bring an end to what we're seeing happening. And God, as I think about uh, you sovereignty. Uh, you told us that blessed are the peacemakers and that part of our job in your kingdom is to go out into the world to bring peace. So there are people alive in the world in the political arena who before they were born were set apart to be peacemakers, who have been raised up in your kingdom to understand the diplomacy, to understand your values, and you've placed them in positions of authority. And so God, we pray that you would anoint and empower those peacemakers to be agents that bring resolution in this situation. And we look at Russia and what's happening, and we ask that you would humble their leadership, that you would bring them to a place of repentance. We pray for Ukraine, uh, that you would strengthen them, that you would care for them, that you would comfort them in their fear and in their grieving. So God, we stand with you and ask for your power to fall in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for, for praying with us for that. We've got a couple of stories as we start. Um, first of all, um, 24-7 Prayer is this organization that exists all over the world, and their mission is to equip and resource Christians to be more effective in the prayer arena. And we had, at the beginning of the year, our little experiment with one of the forms of equipping that they do, which is the prayer rhythm that we've got set up in here. If you haven't seen it, feel free to open the door, stick your head in, enjoy time in there. If you want to just go during the service and just go in there and pray, feel free. I need all the help I can get. Um, so their national leadership team and their international leadership, so 24-7, was started in the UK 22 years ago. And so the, the international directors are here, the founder is here, and the national leadership team for the US of 24-7 Prayer are here. They're in Portland. Why are they in Portland? Because they have been watching what God is doing in Portland, and they want to come and experience the move of God in this city. Did you know that there are Christian organizations with their eyes on Portland because God is moving here? We don't realize that half the time. So they came, and I had the blessing. Pete Gregg, who founded it, is like a spiritual hero of mine. Uh, and I've, I've been really impacted by his life and his journey. So I got the, the joy of going to the airport on Thursday and picking him up and driving him from the airport to where he was going. And as we're going, again, I mentioned this before, Pete Gregg saw the video that Jack produced of our testimonies from the prayer room. And what did Pete Gregg do when he saw it? He got the whole of 24-7, including himself, to share our video so that the world could see what was happening. So we're in the car, and Pete goes, tell me about what's going on at your church. 
And so in this 20-minute car ride from the airport, I'm telling Pete about what God is doing in Alliance Bible Church. And what does he say? I need these reminders. This is why I do what I do. And this is how you know this is true. Tomorrow morning, we kick off our leadership meetings. We're, we're setting all the vision for the next 10 years. I've been trying to figure out how to lay the right foundation. Would you come tomorrow? Would you stand in front of our leadership team? And would you testify about what God is doing in your church and how the prayer room impacted that so that our team can remember why we exist? right? I'm like, did I hear you right? And so Tyler Statt and the pastor Bridgetown's talking, Pete gets up and talks, and then Pete's like, I'm going to hand over to Scott. And I'm thinking, why the heck am I here? Um, And as I shared the story of what God was doing here, what were they doing? Some people were weeping with joy. Some people were whooping and hollering. And then at the end of sharing the story, they all gathered around They laid hands on me as a representative of this church and prayed that God would continue to bless Alliance Bible Church and the ministry that we're doing in the city. That is what God is doing here. Uh, One of the greatest prayer guys in the world right now is excited about our church and interceding that what we're experiencing happening here would continue to happen. That's cool, right? (laughs) Yeah, we a little bit of excitement in the room. Uh, I I, I woke up... I went to bed, giddy. I woke up, giddy. I left the meeting, giddy. I arrived into the office, giddy. Uh, and so I felt we needed to share that. <laughs> um, Nick's story, to preface this, you know, I've, I, I enjoy going out and sitting with people uh, over coffee. And there's a few people in the church in the last week that I've been able to sit down with and just hear their story. And one of my favorite people to sit with um, as we sat for a couple of hours in insomnia was sharing with me... Um, just looking back over things in life, the way the enemy likes to bring up the brokenness of our past and kind of just run it over and over in our mind and raise questions about, are we worthy? Can he really forgive us? Can he really love us? And just asking, like, I want to learn more and be more comfortable with the fact that he loves me despite of all the stuff that's gone on in the background. It's true of my own story. Uh, I grew up uh, in, a, in a great home, but one of the parts of my story that I can't remember if I've shared is that I experienced some, some abuse as I was growing up. Uh, and that abuse damaged my soul and left me feeling like I wasn't a worthy person. Uh, so a lot of what I did in life was me trying to find a way to give myself value and dignity because I didn't feel I possessed any. Coming out of a season of being abused, I, what did I do? I went off the rails, Um, but I was a straight-A student, and I was everybody's favorite, so my off-the-rails happened in complete secret, and no one knew it was happening. But I was completely sexually broken, and that season of my life, there's a lot of things as I look back on it that I did and participated in that I am not proud of, and there are moments in my life when, when things are happening and God raises the abuse and then my response to it, and I feel so unworthy. And I I wrestle with, like, God, how can you use me knowing the things that exist in my past? Um, I don't know if there's anyone in here that looks back over your life and sees some things there that the enemy likes to surface. And as you look at them, think, am I really worthy? Can he really love me? Am I really forgiven? Can God really use me? 
And I'll tell you, I sit in a room with Pete Gregg and JT Thomas and Tyler Statton and the national leadership team of 24-7 and Renee. And, and as I'm looking at these people, Satan raises these things. I'm like, I am not worthy to sit in the room with these people. As these people say, you are so worthy and God wants to use you and all the mess to lead forward his kingdom. And so we're going to look at a passage today that is going to speak right into the middle of that situation. So uh, I want you to have in mind, what are the things that the enemy uses as broken records in your life? You're not worthy of him. You did this thing and it's so atrocious. Um, you, you're not worth anything. You're not valuable enough. You can't know enough. You don't do it right enough. What are those things? And I want you to have them in mind. Um, as we jump into this. And the question is, you know, if these things are so atrocious, how could God forgive us, use us, and would he ever restore us with all of that stuff in our background? So final preface before we jump into the passage. I told you this is one of those mornings. We're going to follow three movements. We've been following these all the way through what we've been talking in Zechariah so far. So we're going to look at what does this passage mean for Israel? What does it mean as it points us to Jesus? And then what are the implications for us as we walk in this? So I'm going to try and go through the same content a couple of different times um, as we look at each of these movements of understanding this passage. So here we go with Zechariah 3. This is the fourth of the visions that Zechariah received on February 19th, 519 BC. So he's just been in the middle of the third vision, then, then this appears. And this, um, just to put it in context as we read it, this is a courtroom scene. Um, so, so have that in mind as we look. So this is Zechariah chapter 3. Starting at verse 1, it says, Then he, the angel, showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. See, this is Zechariah saying this, but he's watching what's happening. Get the turban on his head. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I'll give you a place among those standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come, I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone that I have set in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. In that day, each of you will invite your neighbors to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So we're going to look at this, and I just want to answer the question, what does this mean for the people of Israel? How would they have understood this? And so we're going to walk through uh, a few things here (laughs) uh, to understand what this means. So first of all, as this vision was happening, the people of Israel would have been humbled. So this is the first word we're going to look at. They would be humbled. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. He's chosen Jerusalem. Is this man Joshua not a burning stick snatched from the fire? 
So in this statement, the people of Israel understand that God is not bringing the Israelites back to the land to rebuild the temple because they're living right, they've done everything awesome, and he's so pleased with them. It is a complete act of grace. They, they're not just a stick in the fire that's been pulled out. They're a burning stick. They're on fire. There's a pastor in town, John Rosenstiel, if he ever listens to me, he'll hear this little reference to him, but he always says, my life's a dumpster fire. <laughs> He's like, ministry right now is a dumpster fire. Portland is a dumpster fire. Um, so this is like dumpster fire. Israel is a dumpster fire that God is pulling out and bringing them back into the land, not because of how they're living, Uh, but because of his grace toward them and the promise that he's made and the future that exists through them. So this is a humbling moment as they hear this reference. It's important to remember here too, the high priest, what was his job? The high priest stood before God as the representative of the people of Israel. So he carried their sins. He had garments on that had the names of the tribes inscribed on it so that when he walked into God's presence, uh, he would carry the people of Israel in with him. So he's a representative. So as he is described as a burning stick pulled from the fire by the grace of God, this is talking about Israel. You are this burning dumpster fire that I have rescued, and I'm bringing you back to the land as an act of grace. So they're humbled. The second thing they would have felt as they listened to this vision is they understood that they were cleansed. It says, Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. So a couple of things to think about in here. The word filthy um, that he uses here has two main words that it's related to in Hebrew. The first one means excrement and the second one means vomit. So this is not, he's been out playing in the mud and he's a little bit dirty. This is covered in a four-letter word and, and then poop. The four-letter word was puke. Did everyone get that? <laughs> uh, excrement and vomit. Wow, I'm on form today. Um, in this, just for clarity, if you're not up with where Scripture is at at this point in the journey, this is after most of the Bible stories that we're used to hearing in the Old Testament. So this, when it's Joshua the high priest, let's just be clear, this is not Joshua that fought the battle of Jericho. This is not the successor to Moses who led the people into the promised land. The name Joshua meant like Yahweh delivers. God is the deliverer, or Yahweh saves. And so that was a common name that they would name people. So this is a different Joshua. Uh, Joshua, is, uh, one of, he's a descendant of Levi, so he's one of the priests. Um, and his father, grandfather, or great-grandfather was one of the people, his father actually, was one of the people that was taken uh, into exile in Babylon, and then is coming back. So he's of the priestly clan. And, and so he stands here clothed in clothes that are covered in excrement and vomit, uh, and that filth and what that represents. And in the Old Testament, bodily fluids that come out of you uh, make you unclean. Um, So he's representing Israel as well. He's representing the whole priestly caste. They're in exile, so there are no priests operating in Israel. There's no temple to be offering sacrifices. So what happened in the wilderness? God gave them a vision that you are sinful people. I'm calling you to be mine. I'm going to set up a system that helps get rid of your sin. And what that's going to look like is we're going to set up this tent. And in the middle of it is the Holy of Holies. And there's going to be some sacrifices that you can give. But there's going to be one high priest that's going to be the one that offers sacrifice for all of the people. And so this whole system has been set up. And so um, by the time they're, 
sent into exile and the temple's destroyed. This doesn't exist anymore. So in this moment, they're looking, Israel are being brought back to the land. You're a burning stick snatched from the fire. You're totally unworthy. You're the person that represents you is covered in sickness and vomit. And the people of Israel are looking, going, remember what's happened. They've gone back to the land. They've started laying the foundation. They've stopped. It's like, God gave us a chance, and we've ruined it again. And in this place, he's going, yeah, there's this person. And remember, I said this is a courtroom situation. The accuser is standing there looking at this high priest going, this person is unfit to lead your people. This person is unfit to be a mediator between the people of Israel and you. Get rid of them. And what's, what's God's response? The Lord rebuke you, Satan, because I have chosen Jerusalem, and these are going to be my people. So as he stands there to vindicate him before the accuser, side note, the word Satan, where, that we get Satan from, is just the word for an accuser. So in the way this is written, it's probably not Satan standing before him, but any character uh, that, that's an angelic person, probably of his kin, that, that, is, that is standing be the accuser. So uh, some of our Bibles will capitalize Satan and say, this is actually Satan. But what is Satan? He's the chief accuser. So it doesn't matter if this is actually Satan or if it's just any accusing force. Chances are in your life, it's not Satan coming after you and raising up the things of your past. It's one of his minions that is coming and reminding you um, of the things that you have done. So here, what happens as Israel are looking at their cherished high priest who represents the nation before God and see him in excrement and vomit, what are they thinking? We're unworthy. We've screwed up. There's no way God is going to use him. And what does God say? He says to those standing before him, take off those filthy clothes. Those filthy clothes do not determine who this person is. They're things that can be removed. They're not identity. They're not the person that I've called them to be. And as he's saying this about Joshua, he's saying this about the nation as a whole. This filth that you walk in is not what you were created for. It's not your identity or your destiny. And I have messengers, angelic messengers, and other people who can come and remove that filth from you to make you right. So these angelic agents symbolically remove the brokenness and the filth of the priestly people representing Israel as they get ready to reestablish the temple and reestablish the worship of God. The next thing that happens is not only are the clothes removed and they're cleansed, but, but suddenly they're clothed. They say to Joshua, see... I have taken away your sin. He's making it clear. I took those garments off. The sin is gone, and I'm going to put fine garments on you. Better word might be fancy. Or uh, uh, then he said, "Put." Then I said. So, so Joshua is watching this. He's watching. Uh, Zechariah, sorry, is watching this vision of Joshua the high priest covered in filth. The the filthy clothes are removed, and Joshua is like so moved. He's just like, get the turban and get it on his head. Like, he, he can't help but interject. Put a clean turban on his head. So what do they do? They take a clean turban, they put it on his head, they clothe him, while this angel of the Lord, the angel of judgment, is standing by in approval. In this, in this part of the passage, we're seeing the allusions to the Old Testament and the priestly garments that were being used. But the word here for a turban, if you jump back into Exodus and, and you start looking in Exodus, the 20s, like 26, 27, 28, 29, as they're 
as they're given the instructions for how the priest would be dressed. The word they're using here is not the same word as the headdress that the priest wore in Exodus. It is it could possibly be related. There's some root words that overlap, but it's a little bit of a different word, and the word is typically used in Scripture with the preface royal in front of it, a royal turban. So this is not just we're installing the high priest and putting his clothes back on. Something's changed about the headdress that the priest is wearing, and it resembles a little bit more of a crown, which we're going to see more of in Zechariah chapter 6. So what's happened? Israel have been kicked out of the land. They've lost their king. They've lost their priesthood. They're going back into the land. And what happens when you don't have a king and you're people that are ruled by God through the priests? This person takes on a new role as this kind of priest king that is going to shepherd the people in through this next season of their life. Don't want to give the game away, but do you know of any priest kings that we might worship today? Um, What happens next? The person is elevated, is the word I want to use. We could say appointed, but by stuck with this word elevated. What the, this is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in obedience to me and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts, and I'll give you a place among those standing here. Who's standing there? This heavenly host. This is a promise of being able to rule and govern God's people uh, represented by this house of God and the promise of restored access into the presence of God, which happened whenever the priest went into the Holy of Holies. Um, Little side note here. The word house is so significant. Remember, my house will be a house of prayer. We have a habit in the West of we look at a building like this and we say, this is the church, right? This building is Alliance Bible Church. This, these people here are the church. This is the house. This is a family of God made up of brothers and sisters through Jesus that worship our Father in this house. And we do this thing when we call it a church, I'm going to the church or, hey, were you in church this week? We kind of separate it into this religious experience rather than were you in the Father's house with the family of God? If we, if we could adopt this language, it changes how we see our relationship to one another and then the role that we have in the, in the world. So notice in, in here, he's elevated, but it's conditional. If you do things right, as has always been in the Old Testament, then here's the promise you will have a position of governance and you'll be able to access my presence. So two promises, restored leadership and restored access. So if you think about the people of Israel as they're hearing this, cut off from the temple where they encountered God with no priests to atone for their sin, the excitement. Remember, the temple's not built yet or rebuilt yet. So they're going, you're promising restored leadership and restored access. That means the temple will be completed. Um, Number five here, secured. I'm going to bring my servant the branch, the stone that I've set in front of Joshua, seven eyes on that one stone. I will grave an inscription on it, and I will remove the sin of the land in a single day. So there's a promise in here that, that the success of the building is going to happen. There's a promise pointing ahead to an ultimate kingdom that's about to be fulfilled. Um, But there's something in here that's confusing and symbolic, and so I want to take a little moment to look at two of the words. The first one is seven. So there's this stone with seven eyes. What the heck is this all about? Um, So the number seven in Scripture is often symbolic of a few things, completion, totality, 
or perfection. So something in this is about something being complete or entire or full. And the idea of the eyes really represents God's attentiveness to the nation of Israel. So this stone with seven eyes on it is really a declaration that God is going to be completely attentive. His eyes are never going to leave the nation of Israel as they're walking into what they're doing. The word stone, though, is one of these other places in Zechariah where commentators go all over the place and trying to work out what this means. So there's two main camps. What is this stone? So option one is they're looking at the description of the priestly garments, and they put this turban on their head, and they have this gold thing that gets an inscription on it that, go, that, that the priest carries into the presence of God. And so some people are looking at this going, this, this stone is clearly in this context of turbans and garments. It's one of the pieces of the priestly outfit. And so this is this, this thing that gets uh, the inscription on it because it talks about something being inscribed on it and that they're carrying this into the presence. So some people believe it's that. Some people believe option two. What's option two? That this is actually the capstone that would be put on the temple when it's completed. So the temple's completed, and we have the, the plaque out front um, that says, here's the original founders of Alliance Bible Church. Well, this is the capstone that would go at the top above the door with an inscription on it that would represent that the temple work is done. So what God is saying in this moment of, hey, here's the, this person, the branch, who's significant in the Scripture. Um, it's a, a name that points ahead to the Messiah. Um, and then there's this stone with seven eyes on it with an inscription on it. It's saying there's this capstone. And I am going to be watching attentively over you in this rebuilding process. And I myself am writing the inscription that's going to go on this stone that is going to symbolize the completion of the work. So here's, here's two passages that... that talk about this. So here's the one in Exodus 28, and you'll see it's it's not a stone here. It's a different word. Make a plate of pure gold. This word could be a rose, a flower, or whatever, and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. So this is the engraving on it. Fasten a blue cord to attach it to the turban that they're putting on his head. It's to be in front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts that Israelites consecrate. So you can see in this how it could work. It's tied to the turban. It's got an engraving on it. It's tied to the sins of the world. But, but here's, here's the thing. I'm going I'm to jump ahead just a little bit. Um, here's the thing that I think uh, when it's talking about the stone. There are other passages in Scripture that say, you know, there's this precious cornerstone that people are going to stumble over a rock that causes men to stumble. I think this, this stone is pointing ahead. I would say it's option two. It's the capstone, and it's pointing ahead to the ultimate capstone that completes the building of the temple. And if we jump to the end of the story, look at the wording in here. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. This is Jesus, if you don't realize it. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows, but he himself. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Really apt for today. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads on the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And why did I go here in Scripture? Um, Because 
John, when he's writing the book of Revelation with all of its symbolic imagery, relies on Zechariah more than any other book. So these things in John's mind are tied together. So Jesus, the capstone with names engraved on him, is going to be the ultimate person that's going to be this branch, this priest, this capstone that's going to lead the nation forward. Last piece says number eight here, but it's supposed to be a six. Um, The promise of peace and security and abundance. And that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. There's promises all through the Old Testament and kings with Solomon through the prophets where the promise is you're going to go into the land and you're each going to have your own fig tree and you're each going to have your own vine. And it's, it's an image of the land at peace and abundance and everyone owning land and having fruit that is being born but what was its purpose? I will bless you to be a blessing to the nations. And this day, you're going to have this, but you will invite your neighbor in to sit under your vine. Um, And so it's this statement of what they have and are being given is to be shared with the neighbors and the neighboring nations. So let me quickly run back through this with movement number two, which is the person of Jesus. So this represents there's a movement of how Israel understands it, but what does this do as it points to Jesus? Look at the words as we put them up together. As this high priest represents the one that we're called to worship, who humbled himself as he left the glory of heaven and came and humbled himself, taking on the nature of a servant. We see this cleansing moment. Jesus didn't need to be cleansed because he was perfect. But what did he do? He runs into the temple to cleanse the temple. He cleanses the leper, healing them. He cleanses the prostitute, making her new. Um, This image of being clothed, where do we see Jesus clothed? He is stripped, and then they put on him the mockery, a crown of thorns, this turban for the high priest that causes pain. They put on him a robe and hand him a scepter and mock him as this uh, false king, Uh, the one who was clothed with ridicule and humiliation in order that we would be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. Then he was elevated, He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords at the right hand of the Father. He is the one who is secure in God. He is the one who offers security to us. He cleanses us of sin. He clothes us in righteousness. He secures us in the Father. And then he sends us out to share these blessings with the people around about us. He's the one that does all this. He is the branch. He is the capstone. He is the high priest. He is the priest king that was and is and is to come. That's Jesus. But what does it mean for us? We have to be humbled. We are a man, uh, we are a burning stick snatched from the fire. I think we go into the world sometimes as Christians, sometimes as American Christians, and think we've got it all together and we walk in pride that does damage in the world, part of how we walk correctly with Jesus is to remember that we are a stick snatched from the fire. So humility comes as we remember that we are the burning stick snatched from the fire. You do not deserve the righteousness of Christ because of something you have done, but because of his sovereign choice of you. So why does that matter? Because then it doesn't, you don't lose it because you did something wrong. It was his choice of you. What comes next? We are cleansed. 
The courtroom, the accuser is accusing Joshua, the high priest. He is an expert at bringing accusation into your mind. I won't ever get it right. I have nothing to offer. I'm a failure. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. It doesn't matter what I do. Something always goes wrong. I'm not deep enough. I'm not spiritual enough. No one will understand me. I have nothing to offer. You are worthless. You know these statements that the enemy uses. What does Jesus say? Let me take off those filthy clothes and let me clothe you with the fruit of the Spirit, with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Let me clothe you with the white robes of righteousness. And here's something that's important to understand. God doesn't put the new robes over your filthy garments. He takes the filthy garments off and puts the robe over the top of it. And I think how most of us live in the world is it's like, I've been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and it just covers up all the crap that's underneath. And that's not the way that he does it. He removes as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our sin from us. So he removes, he strips us naked, Adam and Eve, naked and unashamed in the garden in the presence of God. He strips us naked where we have no shame. And then in removing that from us, he clothes us in the robe of righteousness and and like that wedding garment as we, the bride of Christ, marry the one who loves us. Then we're elevated. We have new roles in this kingdom, new access to his presence. And yes, just like them, there are conditions attached to our faith. The condition is, if you want Jesus, you have to surrender your life to him and understand that he is the high priest. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And you have to say, Jesus, I'm no longer going to live this life on my own. I want what you offer. And to do that, I'm going to fall on my knees before you and declare that you are the Lord of my life. That's how we get in. In that moment, he cleanses us of all our sin. He coats us in righteousness. What are the conditions attached to our faith? Love God, love people. Walk in the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. Be perfect as he is perfect. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. We are elevated into this place where we get to minister that to the people around about us. We are secure in him. Through Jesus, we have security. I've said this here before. I don't worry, like, will I make it to the end? Like, am I going to somehow lose my salvation? How do I know I'm going to win in the end? Because Jesus is at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. The Spirit of God is inside of me interceding with groans too deep for words. And I have confidence that their prayers will work. So now it's my job, rather than rebel and run from that and, and, and jump into the things of darkness, to sit in that and partner with them and having their prayers transformed in me. And lastly, shared. You will invite your neighbor to sit under your vine and fig tree. Who is the neighbor that God is calling you to invite into this blessing? Who's the neighbor wrestling with identity, wrestling with their past, feeling worthless or not enough? And God is inviting you to bring them into the vine. I am the vine, you're the branches. Sit under the fig tree to experience the fruitfulness that comes with Jesus. So all that's left now as we Uh, go back into worship is to respond. How do we respond to this? The invitation. 
Some of you in the room, you've accepted the invitation to give your life to Jesus and then be cleansed, and you were cleansed, and you were given this new identity in him. But for many of you, you're still wrestling with brokenness from the past. And so I want during worship, this is an invitation to, to respond to God and, and remind yourself that those things have been removed from you by his choice, and you have been clothed with righteousness. And some people in this room, you are not with Jesus. And the invitation for you is to say, I want my filthy garments removed, and I want to be clothed in righteousness. And that's going to look like saying to him, Jesus, you are the Lord of, of this world, and I surrender my life to you. I want you to rule and reign over my life. Forgive me for my sins and come in to my life. And if you do that, uh, turn to someone next year, come find me and let me know because I want to pray with you and talk with you through that. So we're going to do this uh, during worship so you can be thinking about these things. Um, if you're someone that's on Tuesday at prayer, if you're someone that is here in pre-service prayer, like I'd love just, I'm not going to say who, but I'd love a few of you to just kind of gather at the back or at the front. And if, if you're here and you want to have a, a, a moment to respond to this, come forward and ask someone to pray for you. You don't need to tell them what the past stuff is. You don't need to tell them what you're struggling with right now, but just come up to someone and say, hey, would you pray for me? Uh, that I would walk in this identity that he's given me, secure in the branch uh, and, and, and secure in him. So, uh, yeah, let's worship. Yeah, please stand as we worship. <clears throat>